both Vipassana practice and the metta practice is collecting the attention and gathering in the scattered mind. And so we practice resting in the awareness of simple objects of experience like the breath or sounds or sensations or the metaphrases. We practice resting in these simple objects, coming back again and again, shepherding the mind back as it gets lost or distracted. At times, as you've probably noticed, we get lost or overwhelmed by multiple hindrance attacks, you know, in these storms of desire or aversion or sleepiness or doubt or restlessness or actually more than five hindrances. Uh, But we keep coming back. We simply return again and again to the space of undistracted awareness. And through this practice, gradually and over time, the mind becomes steadier, becomes less distracted, less disturbed. We're not so totally lost in our thoughts and in our stories. As we abide in the simplicity of the present moment, as we abide in the simplicity of the loving phrases, the loving wishes, what happens is that a very gentle and exact awareness begins to develop. Our minds, our hearts, gradually begin to soften, they begin to relax, they begin to open. We begin to see ourselves more completely and more fully and more wholly. We begin to see many parts of ourselves that had been hidden. Carl Jung had some very apt words for this process. He said, one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. The latter procedure, however, is disagreeable and therefore not popular. (laughs) It is somewhat disagreeable. (laughs) So it's not by holding on to some idealized image of ourselves or how we'd like to be or how we should be. The process of enlightenment, the process of awakening, is about making that which has been hidden previously, that which has been obscured, we bring it into the light of awareness. As we do this, as we relax our hearts and minds, there's a very interesting process that begins to happen along with this increasing steadiness and stability of attention. And that is, we begin to re-experience all kinds of thoughts and images and memories. It's as if there's this vast accumulation of impressions that in some mysterious way are stored in this mind and body, and as we make the space for them, at least very many of them begin to arise, they begin to surface. And we remember past incidents, past situations, people from our past. 
And with the power of a still and focused mind, with the power of an undistracted mind, we re-experience these things, often with tremendous clarity and vividness, often much more clearly than we did the first time around. And very often, at first, these memories, these thoughts of people or situations, the images of them, they may carry the same old charge that was present when we did first experience and that we've carried all of these years, holding various hurts or fears, reliving old arguments. Often we remember unskillful things that we've done in the past. You know, they come up in the stillness of our mind. And we might feel really quite great remorse about them. And we also remember the skillful things that we've done. You know, acts of kindness, of love, of generosity. And this can bring a great delight to our mind, a great joy. Although our Western conditioning seems to lean towards the former rather than the latter. <laughs> And it can even co-opt the thoughts of skillful deeds and somehow turn it into a self-judgment. And this happened to me in Burma as I was practicing with Saida Upandita. At one point, my practice had really just come to a kind of... Uh, just felt like a standstill. You know, I was sitting and walking and sitting and walking and sitting and walking and it seemed like it was just the same old stuff happening. This was going on for a couple of weeks. So one point I came in and he said, Joseph, why don't you contemplate your sila? And in his framework, you know, he was meaning, well, contemplate your own past good deeds and this will create some energy and rapture and you'll feel happy. But when I heard him say, contemplate your sila, my first thought was, what did I do wrong? (laughs) Yeah, and so I started feeling horribly guilty. I didn't even know what I had done wrong. So we want to be careful of that Western tendency, you know, to self-judgment and guilt. What's quite amazing, though, is as we sit in the stillness and as these different memories and impressions in the surface really come to the light, we begin to see it all and experience it all with a lot less defensiveness because our hearts actually have softened and have opened, and so we can see it not so much from this sense, as one Zen master put it, of fighting with ourselves, but we just see each situation for what it was. And in this space of acceptance and lack of defensiveness, lack of taking sides, it becomes much easier to forgive ourselves, to forgive other people. This attitude is expressed wonderfully in a line by W.H. Auden, the poet. He said, Love your crooked neighbor with all your crooked heart. (laughs) (coughs) I love that as an expression of metta for ourselves, for others. It's just the acknowledgement that we're all a mixture of qualities. Now, we've all done some mix of skillful and unskillful things. And if we can see that with openness and acceptance and a certain ease, this quality of forgiveness comes very easily. 
process of mindfulness and awareness of all these arising impressions and states really is a process of purification. You know, we are lightening, we are enlightening ourselves. Our minds become lighter, our hearts become lighter, because we're seeing all this stuff now with mindfulness, with acceptance, to some degree without judgment, and it comes up, and we see it, and we let it go. And it may come up quite a few times, but we keep letting it go until we really are free of that particular that particular knot. And something very wonderful happens at this point. At this stage of mindfulness and openness and acceptance, feelings of metta, of loving-kindness, really begin to arise quite spontaneously. Now, in this, in this arena, it's not that we're doing metta as a practice, but rather in the place of openness and acceptance, it's as if we experience metta as the natural expression of awareness. Just that basic feeling of friendliness. And we begin to get a sense, a feeling, or an understanding that the feeling of goodwill, the feeling of friendliness, really does express our deepest nature. Now, and that's a wonderful realization to come to, that underneath all the judgments and all the self-criticism and all the criticism of others, that underneath all of that, and we simply rest in bare attention, rest in mindfulness, the expression of that bare attention or the manifestation of it, is this feeling of connection. There's one exercise that I've done, and I've suggested to some of you in interviews, that I found very helpful in revealing this, revealing the experience of metta being the expression of awareness. And it comes about for me very often in those times when I'm having difficulty with someone or a situation and I can feel my heart contract. You know, when we're irritated or annoyed or we're judging somebody or angry at somebody or something. You know, in this space of mindfulness, we can be aware, yeah, there's a, there's a tightening of the heart, there's a contraction which causes this sense of separation. When we're contracted in that way, we do feel separate from and alienated from and isolated from the other person or the environment. We've contracted into a prison you know, of self-reference here. So the exercise that I do at that time, and it can be done not only in sitting practice, it can really be done at any, at any time, when I feel that contraction of the heart, I feel it physically, notice it, recognize it, and then relax the heart into the space of awareness. And it's, I would say it is a physical thing that's happening. It's on the energetic level, going from that place of tightness, relaxing the heart, relaxing that, into the space of awareness, of openness, that actually is holding both the other person and myself.
The same space holds us both. And what's so amazing in relaxing into that space, which holds us both, holds us all, the feeling of alienation or separation in that moment has been transformed into a feeling of metta. Because the space of awareness, the nature of it, the expression of it, is that sense of connection and friendliness. So I would just suggest you're playing with this a little bit. You know, you, you can frame it all as a simple mnemonic device to remember. Um, just that little statement, relaxing the heart. In times of constriction, in times of contraction, relax the heart into the space of openness and notice the quality of the heart in that space. in different ways you've experienced and we've been practicing loving-kindness or metta what is the actual quality of it? I see loving-kindness I see this feeling as being a basic generosity of the heart it's a simple feeling or it's a simple wish that for ourselves and for others be happy And the particular quality of metta or loving-kindness is that it's not seeking any self-benefit. It's not seeking anything back from it. And this is its great power. There are no expectations in metta. We're not doing it in order to get something back. It's just that simple generosity. Be happy. Be happy. May I be happy. May you be happy. And in this simplicity of goodwill, metta doesn't make any distinctions between people, which is very unlike the feeling of love with desire or love with attachment, which in some way is our more usual experience. Now, in our relationships in the world, Mostly we feel love mixed in with desire and attachment. But there are some very significant limitations in that. Because love mixed with desire or attachment is always for a limited number of people. We desire one person. We desire two people. Three people. (laughs) Four people. But it would be impossible and unthinkable to have desire for all beings. (laughs) I mean, that would be a lower realm. (laughs) It's interesting to see that desire does not have the capacity to touch all beings. And yet precisely precisely the quality that metta has, you know, which makes it so different. This ability to embrace all is expressed really beautifully in a line that I've mentioned a lot in, in talks. Uh, the Chinese, uh, Japanese poet, Isa, he said, in the cherry blossom's shade, 
there's no such thing as a stranger. And then when I read that, it was just such a beautiful image, which to me expressed the feeling of metta. In the shade of metta, in the expression of metta, there's no such thing as a stranger. Everyone, every being, can be included. And even, perhaps more importantly for us, and more strikingly, unlike the love mixed with desire, or the love mixed with attachment, metta does not easily turn into ill will, or jealousy, or anger. Now, how often in our more usual relationships can we be tremendously in love with someone but mixed with desire and attachment, and then conditions change, we change, they change, and this relationship which had been so full of this love, all of a sudden, you know, there can be tremendous anger, tremendous jealousy. But metta doesn't turn that way very easily for a very simple reason. We don't want anything back. When we're expressing metta, it's independent of how the other person is. It's not dependent on conditions. We're not looking for anything in return. And that's precisely its great strength and its durability. People or situations don't have to be a certain way for us to have loving feeling. And we see this, and this is is one of the most interesting parts of the formal metta practice for me is when we get, you know, as you have, to working with a neutral person or a difficult person. You know, but starting, starting with a neutral person, for example, somebody who you don't even know, and you start doing metta for them, you start wishing them well, and all of a sudden you have these tremendously loving feelings for this person that you don't know. That's very instructive. Because what it's showing us is that how we feel about beings and about people and about individual people, that how we feel about them fundamentally, most basically, is up to us. This is tremendously empowering. In contrast to something an old girlfriend of mine once told me in the middle of an argument. She said, stop making me feel aversion. (laughs) It's quite freeing to come to the place where we realize that nobody's making us feel aversion. The opportunity is always there to feel aversion. (laughs) But no one's compelling us to have that feeling. We have it out of long-established habit patterns, but we can change those habit patterns. You know, and then when we move on to metaphor, a difficult person, somebody that that we really do have difficulty, it's very interesting. And sometimes I think people get a little stuck in thinking, well, is this difficult person out there and we focus on them and somehow have to dredge up loving feeling toward them. I don't think it's quite like that. I think it's settling back 
into the loving feeling, into the metta, starting with someone for whom it's easy to feel it. So we just generate that space of loving feeling. And this feeling is simply radiating out, this feeling of goodwill. And then the difficult person just happens to be out there, you know, in the, in the rays of the metta. So we don't have to kind of, you know, dig out this loving feeling from our relationship to them. It's like we just rest in this loving feeling within ourselves, within our capacity, and we just spread it out, and it touches everybody. It touches the people we are friendly with, the people we're not so friendly with, the people we're difficult with. They're just in the rays of this feeling, and this is the practice that we cultivate. You know, we've spoken at different times of our teacher Deepama, and we speak so much of her because she was so extraordinary. And part of it was her, the great, great power of her metta. Her relationship to the world was one of blessing. She just went around blessing everyone and everything, and that's how she related. And it was worth going to Calcutta to just have her bless you. You know, she would kind of kneel down, she'd stroke your head, and just like that. And the feeling of being so unconditionally loved was so powerful, because it's so rare, you know, in our lives. And it was very inspiring to see that this is possible. You know, she came to that place through her own practice, and it's a practice that we can do for ourselves. So metta is a simple, heartfelt wish. Very simple. Be happy. The feeling of basic friendliness. We practice making this the quality of our relationship to ourselves, to our own minds. A line I think I mentioned in the very first opening talk, which may have different meaning for you now. Line from the samurai, Japanese samurai poem, I make my mind my friend. You know, with all the stuff and with all the things that we experience, and we make our minds our friends. And we develop this relationship not only to our own minds, but also our relationship to the world. But we also need to notice the places of the pretense of metta. You know, because we can be sending out all these loving wishes, but it not be authentic, it not be genuine. I had a very striking experience of this. This was quite a few years ago. I was visiting a friend in Western Mass, and he lived down in the woods, uh, you know, down this dirt road, and there were just a few other houses on the road. And as I was taking a walk, I was past one of the houses, there was one very aggressive little dog that was barking. And really quite, the dog was quite upset and frantic, uh, not tied up. You know, and so I see this dog and barking, and I get a little, and I think, oh, well, I'll do metta. You know, and so I'm going to be happy, be happy, be happy. <laughs> <laughs> and it came over and bit me. <laughs> I thought, that's not supposed to happen. <laughs> but it really was a very good reflection of my actual mind state. 
because I was saying be happy, be happy, be happy, but the actual feeling was you stay over there and I'll stay here. <laughs> so it's worth paying attention, you know, as we do the metta in formal or informal ways. You know, have we actually dropped into that place of friendliness or, or not? There's one Tibetan teacher who said that instead of asking people, how are you, when he, greet them, when he greeted them, he would say, has your heart been kind? And well, what a nice reminder. And if we went around in our greeting, has your heart been kind today? The Dalai Lama, he, he often speaks of how his true religion is kindness. And there's such a, there's such a great power in that simplicity. But that's really what we're practicing, coming to that place of kindness through awareness, through attention, through mindfulness. So through awareness, this natural, more spontaneous metta begins to arise. As these feelings of love and friendliness grow stronger in us, our hearts, our minds become softer, they become more pliable. As they become more pliable, it becomes, metta becomes the ground for wisdom. Because in the softness and the openness, we can actually bring some discriminating wisdom to our thoughts, to our feelings, to our actions. We can see more clearly because we're less reactive Okay, what actions, what train of thought will lead to happiness, which will lead to suffering? We make wiser choices. As we make wiser choices, we experience more happiness. As we experience more happiness, we feel more metta. As we feel more metta, our hearts and minds become more pliable. As they become more pliable, we make wiser choices. <laughs> and so it becomes this spiral upward you know, of loving-kindness, of awareness, of wisdom, we can actually, and we are, you know, on this track. That's wonderful. And sometimes people think that the Buddha just emphasized suffering too much. But really, all of the teaching is in the service of happiness. This is what the Buddha was teaching. How can we be truly happy? How can we be free? And this is the path. This is the spiral path leading up. What I think that we've all realized, and it's a very profound realization, and it's, it's one of the things that makes this environment so special, is the realization that I think each one of us had very... Uh, of us has very deeply that the Buddhist teachings are not something simply to admire they're something to practice for ourselves you know, because this is what actually transforms our lives okay so through the practice of awareness metta begins to express itself more and more spontaneously as we live in this ground of loving kindness more and more then when we see the suffering in others, or we see the suffering in ourselves, there's a natural movement of the heart to want to alleviate that suffering. 
when friendliness, when goodwill is the ground of our being, when that's the place where we're residing, basic goodwill, and we come close to suffering, the natural response of that goodwill in the face of suffering is, how can I help? Can I help to alleviate this? This is the feeling of compassion. And what opens us to the feeling of compassion is our growing ability to come close to, to open to suffering. There's this intimate relationship between our ability to open to suffering and opening this wellspring of compassion within us. There's a very inspiring example of this. There are many, of course. But one that comes to mind right now, I saw a video, a documentary, numbers of years ago, on the life of Oscar Romero, who was the archbishop in El Salvador during the Civil War. And it was a documentary of his life. And it's very extraordinary because it started out showing him as this high church official, really as part of the ruling establishment. You know, and that was his life, and that was his milieu. Very removed from the suffering of the Civil War. But through a whole series of circumstances and close friends of his, and in different ways, he slowly became aware of the magnitude of the suffering that the people were enduring during that civil war, because it was really was a horrible situation. And the documentary showed, and this was over the course of a period of time, as he became more aware of the suffering, that natural compassion in him started to flow and he started to speak out you know, about the tremendous injustices that were going on there. And he dedicated his life you know, to the fighting of that injustice and in the end he was assassinated you know, by some of the right-wing... I don't know whether they were called death squads there or not, but... And it was just such a moving and inspiring example just of the transformation of a being, of a heart, starting with a situation due to circumstance or conditioning or whatever, where we're closed to suffering, and then slowly this growing ability to open to it and then respond to it. And I feel a lot of our practice is just about this. I mean, what is the first noble truth of the Buddhist teaching? It's the truth of suffering that exists in ourselves and in the world. Can we open to it? Now, can we feel it? Because that's when the compassion comes forth. So there's one very obvious and important question here. If compassion comes from proximity to suffering, from a willingness, be close to suffering. And suffering is all around. It's certainly within us and in so many places and situations in the world. If compassion comes from closeness to suffering and there's so much suffering, why isn't there more compassion in the world? 
Now, where does it get hung up? When we investigate this, and we need to investigate it in ourselves, because that's where the transforming insights will come. When we look in ourselves, we see that in many situations, and very often, we are not willing to open to the suffering that's there because it's painful, it's difficult, it's not easy. We don't like to feel that. You know, and so we move away from suffering through avoidance, through denial, through indifference, and we try to live in a little walled community of our mind, you know, trying to protect ourselves from the very real suffering that's there. But what happens is that we wall ourselves off also from compassion. So right here is a very interesting place to investigate within ourselves because behind all the movements away from suffering of avoidance, of denial, of indifference, behind all of those movements away from the experience of what is true, when we look carefully, we find very deeply conditioned fears. Now, right at that edge is where fears begin to reveal themselves. Now, in our meditation practice and in our lives, as you've experienced very often, I think, in these past five or six weeks, it's like we reach certain boundaries, certain edges of what's okay, of what's comfortable, you know, of what we're familiar with. And right at those edges, right at those boundaries, where we're about to go into something that's painful or difficult or more suffering than we're used to, right at those edges, that's when the fears emerge. So a big part of our practice is learning how to recognize and to work with fear when it arises, because it's a very powerful conditioning. And it's not enough to understand working with fear theoretically. And we could hear all kinds of talks about fear and its nature and how to work with it. We really need to apply it very specifically in our own experience. We have to pay attention in ourselves to when fear arises. What's the particular edge for us, the particular boundary? And right in the specifics of our experience, that's where we need to the work. So I'd like to mention just a few possible arenas in which fear often arises, although for each one of us, you know, they may be slightly different, but a very common one, very common place that fear arises is in the face of discomfort or physical pain. You know, we're okay with this much, but anything more is too much. And one of our reactions to that is we pull back. We're afraid to open it. We're afraid to feel it. We do whatever we can to avoid it. And what's so amazing is that very often the fear of pain is not the fear 
of what we're actually experiencing in the moment, which most of the time is okay. More often than not, it's the fear of anticipated pain. Because we have a certain sensation, and maybe uncomfortable or painful, but then the mind kicks in another half hour, and I'll never be able to be with it. And we're just creating a little mind world of fear, buying into it, living in it, and then that fear conditions us pulling away from the experience. So we want to see that process and not just be uh, blindly conditioned by it. Pay particular attention to how the mind relates to pain when it's at an edge. Is there contraction? Is there pulling back? Is there tensing? Is there aversion? Do we just move? Because right there is an interesting place. You know, one point in my practice, and I'm not suggesting that you do this, I'm just telling a story. <laughs> but at one point in my practice, Upandita gave me this instruction. He said, just sit. And sit as long as you can. Sit until the pain comes and then sit through it. And at, at that point, I was, said, I was doing some quite long sittings. You know, so I would sit for an hour and a half, two hours, I'd be fine. But then, at some point, two hours or two and a half or three, whatever it was, the pain came. Uh, and, okay, the instructions just sit through it. It was so amazing. It was so intense. It was really intense. And I knew that if I moved my leg a quarter of an inch, the pain would go away. And so I just played that edge of And it was so bad that it got interesting. (laughs) You know, I thought, what is this? What is this experience that is so painful? You know, and I just kind of played with that edge. And I'm, I say I'm not suggesting that you necessarily do this because it's not that I had any great breakthrough with this. But since he gave me this little exercise, and I did do it for some time, I learned some interesting things, you know, just about the nature of pain and the nature of my own fear, you know, and just playing, playing at that boundary. This fear of certain painful feelings or emotions, I mean, in some ways, physical pain is relatively easy. Now, we've probably all gone back and forth with it and explored it to some extent. How are we with very difficult emotions, painful emotions? Do we pull away? Do we defend ourselves? And for each one of us, they may be different. It might be feelings of unworthiness or loneliness or guilt or rage or boredom or embarrassment, or self-hatred, or there's a long list of very painful emotions. What do we do with those emotions? Do we do the same thing with them that we might do with physical pain, pull away, avoid, try to close ourselves off, or is it possible, in the same way that we learn to work with physical pain, 
can we learn to open, to feel it? It's okay to be with them. How much of our lives has been constructed so that we don't have to feel certain things? And we don't take risks, perhaps, because of a fear of the feeling of failure. Or we keep ourselves busy out of a fear of feeling lonely or bored. Very interesting to see how we construct our lives so that we avoid certain kinds of suffering. And then we start living very defensively. Our practice is to see that it's possible to open to all of these feelings. It's true that they are painful. They're suffering, but it's okay. We can open to them. We can feel them. They can wash through. Now, often people have tremendous fear of the feeling of insecurity. Insecurity about what's going to happen to the body, what's going to happen in their lives, what's going to happen in the world. We don't like feeling insecure. And so we just try to get everything tightly in place. Often this sense of insecurity drives that feeling of the feeling of being deprived and never having enough and then arranging our lives to satisfy that. On one retreat, this was in England, I was on this one retreat and every morning I would come down for breakfast and every morning they served exactly the same breakfast. They had porridge, they had toast, fruit and tea. And that was the menu. So every morning I would come down and I'd take my porridge, two pieces of toast, fruit and tea. And then I would go to my table and sit and eat. And I ate everything but one piece of toast was enough. So I put the second one back. Second morning, come down, take my porridge, two pieces of toast, fruit and tea. Went through breakfast, one piece of toast was enough. Third morning, come down, porridge, two pieces of toast. <laughs> It was amazing. This went on for a week or ten days. <laughs> so I couldn't quite believe the conditioning in my mind. I, I named it the just-in-case mind. <laughs> you know, I'm going to take that second piece of toast just in case I'm hungry. You know, it's this great fear that somehow, if I didn't have it on my plate... <laughs> it seems to go very deep. Now, even in very trivial things, I remember very often in my practice, I'd be sitting in times when it was really going wonderfully. You know, you have certain sittings where it may be the deluded mind, but one has the feeling that, you know, one's going to get enlightened any minute. You know, it's, it's like things are really, you know, these wonderful sittings. And I would be having some of these sittings, and the tea bell would ring. <laughs> It's like, I need to go get my banana. (laughs) In the face of enlightenment, give me a banana. (laughs) You know, I can't remember what I mentioned to you. One yogi who came into an interview and, you know, just claimed 
the, the great insight was the mind has no pride. <laughs> well, it's like that, you know. But it's interesting to see what that conditioning is about. What was that great fear? You know, that if I mistage something dreadful would happen. Fear rules us a lot. You know, and it's very helpful to begin to see it come up in these different situations and to at least begin to explore the possibility that we could become mindful of the fear and not buy into it so much and so not be constrained by it so much. big fear for people. You know, there's fear of pain and discomfort. There's fear of insecurity, of not having enough. Fear of certain other emotions that are very difficult and we close ourselves to. Very big fear for people often is the fear of death. And the Buddha spoke very directly to this. He said that some people are afraid of death and other people are not. And then he he gave the reasons why fear arises for some people. He said, when there's very strong attachment to sense pleasures, then there's a fear of death because obviously we give them up. He said, when there's very strong attachment to the body, then there's fear of death. When we have not led a life having done wholesome good things, skillful things, and we've done a lot of unskillful things you know, throughout our lives, so then there's often a fear of death. And when there's no understanding of the Dharma, no basic understanding of the nature of the mind and body, there can be fear of death. And then he went on to say, the opposite, that those people who don't fear death at the time of dying are those who are not so addicted to sense pleasures, who are not so attached to the body, who have done good things and wholesome things in their lives, and who do have some understanding of the Dharma. For those people, death is seen as just a natural process. One of my favorite teachings about death and the fearlessness that can come from an awakened mind is a story about the death of His Holiness Karmapa, the 16th Karmapa. I think there's already a 17th. Um, but the 16th Karmapa died in Chicago, and I, I believe he had cancer, and his body was you know, really riddled in his quite a mess. Uh, they were doing all kinds of surgery and trying to save him, and every, everybody around him was very upset. And one day it said that uh, you know, his students came in and very upset about the fact that he was dying, and he just looked at them and he said, don't worry, nothing happens. <laughs> and I thought, what a perspective to have. You know, that when we really understand the unborn nature of the mind, from that perspective, nothing is happening. So there's that possibility, you know, that tremendous possibility of understanding. 
tell one story which I'm sure many of you have heard. But it really points to some potential in working with fear, great potential, because when we're willing to work with the fear in an open way, that willingness to be with the fear can open our heart, open our hearts very profoundly. This is a story of one of my early experiences with Zen meditation. I had done a session with uh, Suzaki Roshi, who was this very fierce old Zen master, really tough. He used to talk in his in his discourses to the yogis. He would say, "Talking to you is like talking to stones. I can say anything." And I mean, that was his basic attitude. <laughs> so you can imagine how it made us feel. <laughs> anyway, in that form, you know, using koan method, where he gives you this koan, and then you go in and see him four times a day. You know, where you present the koan, then give your answer. And the whole Zen form, as you know, it's very formal. Everything's in a group. It's sitting, walking. It's, it's not. It's not big on individual practice and individual rhythms, and you know. So it's a very high-pressured, extremely high-pressured situation. So I'm going, and he gives me my koan, and I'm working on these koans. And every time I go in to see him, it's like I do my bows, I say my koan, give my answer. And he just kind of looks at me with tremendous disdain, and he says, "Oh, very stupid." <laughs> and he would just go on. This is four times a day. You know, I hated going in there. It's like I was always the last one, you know, to go in. It was really painful. At uh, my very best moment, he said. Oh, good answer, but not then. <laughs> so anyway, about the fourth day into this session, I think he had some compassion or pity or something. So he gave me an easier koan, kind of backed me up a step. And he said, this koan was, how do you manifest Buddha nature while chanting a sutra? Okay, well, I understood that. And I said, okay, just go in and chant few lines of the sutra, which we had been chanting every day in the group. But what he knew or he didn't know, I don't know, that touched an incredibly deep button in me, which got conditioned by my third grade music teacher, <coughs> singing teacher, who said Goldstein just mouthed the words <laughs> in our little third grade chorus. <laughs> and since that time, like, you know, singing uh, in public, you know, this tremendous inhibition. And over the years it was reinforced many times by many different people. <laughs> so there I was in this very high-pressure situation, you know, and it was, this was like confronting my deepest uh, fear and concern. So I'm just practicing, and I practice like two lines of this chant during my sitting. I must have gone over it a thousand times. Okay, the bell rings. I go up. I do my bows. I say my con. I start this chant. I made a complete mess of it. I mean, I got the words wrong. I got the words all backwards. I got the rhythm all wrong. I got the melody all wrong. Everything. 
And I felt awful. I mean, I just felt completely exposed and naked and horrible. And I felt so, so vulnerable. You know, and just in that moment, he looked at me and he said, Oh, very good. You know, and it was an incredible moment because he really meant it. You know, and what was so amazing, because my heart was so open and exposed, it's like those words, it's as if they touched my heart directly, you know, because there was that opening for them to touch. And it was just a great, great lesson in somehow recognizing that in those situations that we may feel are the most difficult for us, we were the most exposed. Right at those moments, there can be a tremendous heart connection, either with another being or with the truth in that moment. So we don't want to miss the value of these times of difficulty and these times of great fear if we can learn to work with it. So the question is, how can we work with it? You know, when the, when the fears arise. The first thing we need to do is we need to recognize fear when it arises in our minds and hearts. We need to be mindful of the fact, yes, fear is present. And in becoming mindful of it, We need to practice the acceptance of the fear. It's okay. It's okay that the fear is here. It's okay that I'm feeling this. And that's where the it's okay mantra came from. It was working with fear. It's okay. Hey, let me feel it. And it reminds me a little bit of how we might be if we were with a frightened child. If we were with a, a child who's very frightened, Probably if we had some wisdom, you know, we probably wouldn't say, oh, you shouldn't be frightened. They are frightened. You know, or we wouldn't try to deny it. Oh, you're not really afraid. <laughs> you know. More, it's okay. It's okay to have this feeling. And it's, it's funny that we, we so intuitively would know what to do with a frightened child, and yet so rarely do we apply that to ourselves. But it's the same principle. It's okay, let me just hold it, let me feel it, let me open to it. This quality of acceptance of fear or any other difficult emotion has implications for our understanding of what in the Buddhist language and path uh, is called right effort. You know, as, as many of you know, the word for effort, right effort in Pali, is virya. And usually virya is translated as this effort. And we really need to make strong effort in the practice. And there are times when that kind of stance is helpful. But I feel that another word much better expresses the quality of virya. And that is courage. Because effort implies 
at least in English, for many of us, it implies a kind of struggle and straining and wanting something, whereas courage is that quality of being willing to be there, simply to be there with what is. Do we have the courage to be present? It's not a struggle to get something. It's not a straining for something. Courage, and the word in English, it comes from derived from heart. Courage or virya means strength of heart. For me, this and at different times in my practice, coming back to courage as virya has been tremendously helpful in times of great pain and great difficulty and fear. Courage to be with it. So we work with the fear through acceptance. We work through the fear with courage, the willingness to be there. We work with fear by investigating the very nature of the mind, the nature of fear itself. Because as we bring a keen mindfulness and investigation to the arising of fear, just as with every other phenomenon, we see its impermanent, insubstantial, transparent, nature, that fear itself is just another mind state. It's like a cloud, an appearance passing through this open sky of the mind. Our practice of awareness, of mindfulness, of investigation, of courage, allows us to settle back, to open to the fear when it arises, and at least at times, to see through the fear, to see that it is just another passing mind state. We don't have to buy into it. We don't have to judge it. We don't have to close off to it. And in that space of awareness, we begin to see the possibility of the fear itself self-liberating. mindfulness, we develop an acceptance for the whole process, we begin to see that metta or loving-kindness is the expression of that awareness, that basic attitude of friendliness. With that basic friendliness, when we come close to suffering, we feel compassion. As we move closer to the suffering, in many different ways, We come to our boundaries, we come to our edges, we come to the limits of what we're willing to open to. At those limits, we begin to experience fear in many different ways, fear of pain, fear of discomfort, fear of certain emotions, fear of insecurity, fear of death, fear of change. For each one of us, it will be different. We reach the boundaries, the fears emerge. Can we learn, can we practice, to work with that fear from a place of acceptance, from a place of courage, from a place of willingness to be with it. And this really is the taking of refuge in the Buddha Dharma Sangha. This is the basic refuge. We, we take refuge and we find safety in the recognition 
of our basic Buddha nature, the nature of awareness. We take refuge in the Dharma, just surrender to what is true. There's a willingness to open to what is true in the moment. And we take refuge in the Sangha, which is all of us practicing together. Tremendous field of support. And we're all in this together. And there's a tremendous commonality to our experience. I'd like to close with a poem by Wendell Berry. It's called The Peace of Wild Things. When despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. Let's sit for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.